All right, good morning. We're in Psalm chapter 8. Turn with me there, if you will. Now, I believe that the most overused and abused word in the entire English language is the word awesome. Certainly in, in the lexicon of, of people around my age and what we just throw around. In fact, yeah, when I found out the taco and burrito cravings pack at Taco Bell was only $10.99, I said, that is an awesome deal. I'm talking about cheap, fast food here. Or I hear people use the word awesome to describe a, a trailer that they watch for the 800th superhero movie that looks like it has the same plot and the same uh, design as all the other superhero movies that come out every single year. However, our dictionary defines the word awesome as inspiring an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, fear. But that really sounds like something that describes God. In fact, I don't know if there are any other beings or, or, or things that exist that could truly be described as awesome, inspiring an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, or fear. Now, I said earlier today, actually, that every proper attitude, every righteous disposition, every bit of holy conduct, and even every correct theological conclusion requires a right view of God. That's right. Every arrival at anything that's actually true starts from a right view of God and a right view of man. And that's what this psalm is all about here in Psalm 8. So let's pray as we enter in. Lord, I just pray that you would speak from your word, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us. Lord, we thank you that your word never returns void. How precious it is. And we glorify you in the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King. Amen. So Psalm chapter 8, starting out in verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, our Lord. This is saying in the Hebrew, Yahweh Adonai. You see, there's two words that are both described in the English language as Lord, but it's actually Yahweh is the first one and Adonai is the second one. And what we have here is Yahweh, his name, the name that he's revealed as himself, the covenant name for God, the personal name of God, but then his title of Lord or Master of Israel. We have our God is our Master. But he's not just majestic in Israel, though, as we see here in this first verse. No, he's majestic just as we sang in all of the earth, but then not just all the earth. It says, you have set your glory above the heavens. You see, even all the earth cannot contain his glory. The earth as, as a unit of measurement is insufficient. It's an insufficient container for the glory of God. So the glory of God is set above the heavens. Now, elsewhere in the Psalms, the earth is actually described as his footstool. You know, people who want to, to rule the world or world governing organizations. You know what I say about that is, you know, what you're looking after, what you're trying to rule is my God's footstool. He owns the earth and everything in it, the cattle on a thousand hills, as the Psalms say. So certainly this tiny planet that we call home, it may seem so massive to us, so full of unknowns and faraway lands, but if it's described as his footstool, 
or something that he possesses. It may reflect his glory because he indeed created it, but this earth cannot possibly contain his glory. So his glory is so massive, so awesome, that it's set above the heavens. So we got that, that huge view, that zoomed out, magnificent, large, mind-boggling view that we can't even comprehend. But then notice the turn that this psalm takes right here. It says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Out of the mouth of babies, babies and infants. We've got two really small babies in our, in our church right now. I think all of us can recognize how small, how fragile they are. And this is saying even the small things, the seemingly weak things demonstrate the glory of God. Now, this is a common theme that recurs all throughout the Bible. As you read the narrative of God's plan throughout the Bible, everywhere we see God using the otherwise weak things to demonstrate his strength. We see God using the things that the world looks at as weak to all the more punctuate how awesome, how sovereign, how mighty he is. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, but God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So, just a few examples. We can't possibly cover all of them. You're probably already thinking of many of them, but we're introduced to Gideon in the book of Judges. Big, mighty warrior Gideon. Strong guy, right? Man of valor. He led a successful military campaign over overwhelming odds with a much smaller uh, army, and you know he's he's a hero, right? Well, we're introduced to him in the story in the book of Judges when he's hiding in a wine press from the Midians, Midianites. And how about Moses, leader of an entire nation? We, we read that he's slow of speech, he's slow of tongue. He was reluctant to do what he was called to do. He was not some great orator. He didn't want the job. Yet he led a nation of two million out of slavery from one of the most powerful kingdoms the earth has ever seen. But then lastly, we have the writer of this very psalm, David. David wrote this psalm, and he understood very personally how God uses the weak to display his strength. Now, David was the youngest of Jesse's sons. In fact, the Lord told Samuel when anointing David, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And David relied fully on the Spirit of the Lord for his strength for the rest of his life, from defeating giants to ruling a nation. But what's interesting about this line right here, out of the mouths of babes and infants, in fact, Jesus quotes this psalm as he quotes many scriptures throughout, uh, as recorded in the Gospels. In Matthew 21, we all know of Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry, right? Jesus walks in, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he cleanses the temple, and children start saying, children start saying, Hosanna to the son of David. So here we already talked about how David wrote this psalm, but then David's offspring, Jesus, the Messiah, rides in on a donkey, cleanses the temple, and children are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And the chief priests, as we know, did not like that one bit. But then Jesus quotes this very line right here in this psalm. See, children are so precious to God. 
So precious. Even, even in the broken speech of a small child, when, when, when praise abounds, Satan is put to silence. So are the enemies of God. They're, they're put to shame when God uses us. When God uses the weak, seemingly insignificant things of this earth, like, like me, like us. When he works in us and through us to do mighty things, because he's, once again, his glory is set above the heavens, right? He's so glorious. He's so powerful. He's so, what's that word? Awesome. That he can use the small, the fragile, the seemingly insignificant things like me and like you to put his enemies to shame. Then we see, we read right here, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yeah, we can get some pretty decent stargazing here in Wisconsin, but it's nothing like where I came from in Wyoming with clear skies and not a lot of light pollution. In fact, a few years back when I was still living in Wyoming, one of my friends came out to visit me and he was living in Ohio. So he's, you know, not used to seeing the stars like we have them out in Wyoming. And we went camping. We went up into the mountains and we had already gotten ready for bed, gone in the tent and everything like that. And I was half asleep. And then I hear him unzip the tent, stick his head out. And all I hear him say is, wow, wow. I'm like, I I don't know what's going on right now. Is there a bear staring at him face to face? What's he seeing right now? So he just taps on me, wakes me up. And I look outside and see this sea of innumerable stars shining so brightly. It was a new moon. There was no light pollution whatsoever. And it was just all I could say was, wow. I felt so incredibly small in that moment. I'm sure you guys have had moments like that when you've looked up at the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Well, just to illustrate this, I, I did some some calculations. You know, I'm personally a, above average size. I think we would all agree, but I just used myself as a, a unit of measurement. I'm sure you could all do the same for yourself. I thought, okay, I am very small. the The sun is very big, and it, and it's far away. It's 93 million miles away. So, since I am so small, if I, how many of me would it take to reach the sun just once? Well, it would take 75.6 billion Steves. 75.6 billion of me standing end to end to reach our closest star. And that's 75.6 billion is likely more people than have ever existed in all of history. But the sun itself is, is pretty big and pretty far away from any other stars. In fact, if the sun were the size of a beach ball, and it were put on top of the Empire State Building, so about this big, if it were put on top of the Empire State Building in New York City, the nearest group of stars would be as far away as Australia is to the Empire State Building. Now, the the sun is not the size of a beach ball. It's enormous, right? In fact, you can fit 1.3 million Earths inside of the sun. But... That being said, the, the, our sun is just an average-sized star. There are stars that are more than 700 times as big as our sun. Now, keep in mind as I, I go through this, these 
celestial bodies that I'm describing are described as the works of his fingers. The fact is, our sun is just one star in a massive sea of stars. The Milky Way galaxy has approximately 300 billion stars. And so my friend and I were just gazing out and when we were camping at just a fraction of those. But how big of a number is 300 billion of the number of stars in our galaxy? Well, if you were to count off per second each of the stars in our galaxy, it would take you 9,510 years to count every star just in our galaxy. But what's crazier yet is our Milky Way galaxy and all of its 300 billion stars is just a speck in a massive sea of galaxies. There's estimated we can observe something like 170 billion galaxies, but scientists now estimate that there are more than 2 trillion galaxies. You know, Altogether, there are, are far more stars than there are all the grains of, grains of sand on the entire earth. All the beaches, all the deserts, that's right. There are more stars in the heavens than there are grains of sand on the entire earth. There are, I mean, it's just an estimation. They have no, no idea. It's probably limitless, but 70 sextillion, that's seven followed by 22 zeros, stars. That's even more than our, our federal debt, right? And scientists think that there are more planets than there are stars. Many more planets than stars. Yet we're told in this psalm once again that these are the works of God's fingers. Just how amazing is our God? We spend a lot of time thinking about how important we are. Our ambitions, our our needs, what, what we want, our comforts, what we want to get out of life. But when we start thinking about how amazing and how awesome God is, how limitless, how unfathomable, how all-powerful, how ever-present, how all-knowing, how huge He is, and how frail and tiny and small and weak we are, mortal, we're sinful, we're sickly, we're, we're dirty, as it says right here, what is man? that you are mindful of him and the son of man that, that you care for him. David's asking the question, really, who, who even are we? Why should, why should a God that big, whose works of his fingers are beyond what we can even fathom, why should he care about us? Why should he give attention to us? Even more so, why should he invest his glory in us? But he does. Son of man here is a, a title that just punctuates all the more that the humanness and the relative lowliness of us compared to the moon and the sun and the stars. Because we aren't just humans. We are humans that are birthed from other humans. Some of you may be big and strong and in the prime of life right now, but at one time, you were one of those helpless babies and infants that we talked about earlier. And even before that, you were just the uniting of a sperm cell and an egg and the multiplication of cells. You were that small. You were finite. You had a beginning. But compared to the 
massive celestial bodies like the moon and the stars and those things that we can hardly even wrap our minds around. This contrast emphasizes just how frail we really are. But notice here, David doesn't doubt that God is mindful of us. He doesn't doubt it one bit. In fact, where we're going with this is just how important we are to to God. He simply is amazed at why. It causes his worship to increase. When he thinks that we of all of all are, are precious to God, it he's just simply amazed as to why, and it causes his worship to increase. We read in verse five, yet you've made him a little lower than the, the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now here when we read that, that in many of your minds might be hearkening back to Genesis 1. But notice here that it doesn't say that God created us a little higher than the beasts of the field. Now what does it say? It says that we've been made a little lower than the heavenly beings. Or angels. And what he's talking about is just by, by present position, by, by glory, by, by nearness to God, we've been made for a little while lower, just a little lower than the angels. In fact, many commentators I was reading thinks that that's the implication here. In our status right here, in our um, temporal uh, state here on, on this planet, we've been made a little lower than the angels. But God, has his destiny for us as his redeemed is that we will be crowned with glory and honor. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 says that one day, us, the saints, the believers, will even judge angels. So we saw earlier in this psalm, again, how just to go back, how God has set his glory above the heavens. His glory is limitless. It's unfathomable. It's uncontainable. Yet God has crowned us with his glory. He created us in his image. I know you guys all know this. You've all heard it so many times, but just, just look around you right now. You're looking at image bearers of God. Each person you see, you're looking at image bearers. That should inform everything about our actions toward one another, should it not? Should it not? That's the, that's a fundamental presupposition of how we treat and respect and love one another. In fact, James chapter 3 says that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we, we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of Him. In fact, Genesis 9, 6 condemns murder because because it's bad for society? Well, it is, but the reason why it condemns murder is for in the image of God, he made man. You see, we are sinning against God when we malign our fellow human beings, because no matter how much someone may hurt you or frustrate you, no matter how much you may feel justified to hurt someone in return, remember that that person is someone that God has made just a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor and made in his image. 
God is mindful of us and cares for us individually, and he also cares for the people that we see around us and interact with. And we see in verse 6 and 7 and 8 again, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. What we see here is again, hearkening back to Genesis where God has created us for dominion, for the management, for the, the stewardship of His creation. And this is such a high calling as well. We, of all beings, you know, this is a call to wisely manage the creatures and the resources that God Himself created, the works of His hands. You know, I don't really think I, I like the term environmentalism or environmentalist. It's got too much baggage with it. It's got some kooks who have taken that term in the past but I, you know i've done some volunteer conservation work myself mainly just because i like the outdoors i like hunting and fishing but i don't like to describe myself as with any kind of label like an ist or an ism or anything like that but i do think that something that should fit for all of us as believers is godly creation stewardship i could deal with that one godly creation stewardship after all, this earth and everything in it belongs to him. He's allowed us dominion over it. We are his viceroys, if you will, because we've been made in his image and given this responsibility. And that is a serious, amazing responsibility that he's given us. So make no mistake, how we respect and how we steward and how we care for his creation absolutely reflects our reverence ultimately for him. Now also, verse 6 calls this earth and its creatures the works of his hands. That's a, a very personal way to talk about everything we see around us, every living thing, every breathing thing, every formation that we see on this earth, all of the natural world. It's the works of our God whom we worship and serve. It's the works of his hands. If we have the utmost reverence for God, whose awesomeness and glory is so astounding that it's set above the heavens, the works of His hands deserve our appreciation. You know, it, it's amazing the, the lengths to which people go to care for and preserve famous pieces of art. And I, I understand why. You know, statues, paintings, and, and the like. We even use the term priceless to describe them. And they're pretty cool. But at the end of the day, those are the works of da Vinci's hands. The works of Van Gogh's hands. We have been given dominion over the works of God's hands. That's amazing. To, to feed ourselves, to clothe ourselves, to shelter ourselves, to steward, to enjoy. So understand, it would be absolutely incorrect just biologically, ontologically, teleologically, just scientifically incorrect to see us as just a part of the ecosystem out there. No, we are not just homo sapiens in the same way that other creatures are just their own species. We are not just a species like all the other species. No, what does this say? It says that God has created us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. And he's given to us dominion over the works of his hands. 
but it would also be incorrect to, to see us as having free reign to abuse the earth with impunity, to abuse the works of his hands. But on the flip side, just how tragic is it that the things that we see around us, that we hear are to have dominion over, so often have dominion over us? The material world, the material things that God's given us to steward, the the resources that we're supposed to steward and manage, even the beauty of creation, we sometimes let it rule us. We make idols out of the very things that God has created for us to rule over. You may say, I'm not fashioning a graven image out of some tree or anything like that, but the very things that God has given us dominion to rule over, to make homes with, to shelter ourselves, to make devices that, that that we can use to access information, to make all of the material possessions that we own. How often do we make idols out of the very things that God created for us to rule over? Then David closes the same way that he started out this psalm. He says, O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Adonai, O Yahweh, our Master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic is your name in all the earth. These considerations of of who God is and who we are inspired David to worship. Now, ultimately, as I I said, as as we started out, Every proper, true conclusion about anything starts with a proper knowledge of who God is. Every right attitude, every right response, every healthy disposition starts out with a proper proper knowledge of who God is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But this, this psalm isn't ultimately about us and who we are. It talks about it. We can have an understanding about it, an appreciation of it, and we can certainly be grateful that God has bestowed upon us this this wonderful blessing and this favor. But this psalm is ultimately about God and who He is. A God who is truly awesome, deserving of all reverence and worship and praise. F.B. Meyer has a wonderful quote that I wrote down here. It says, He made us to have dominion by the word of his creation. He made us kings unto God by his blood. His name shall therefore be honored through all the earth. You know, it's, we're here. We were made to bear the image of this amazing God that this psalm describes. We were made to glorify him. We were made to worship Him in everything that we do. The second Timothy 1 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What an incredibly high calling. That amazing God that created those those trillions of stars and everything we see around us is mindful of you. 
cares for you. Came to earth, took the form of a servant, humbled himself to death on a cross to redeem you. So in view of of all of this, God deserves the utmost of our worship and our praise in every facet of our existence. Everything we are, everything we do, everything belongs to him and should be worship unto him. So let's have a big view of God. In this new year, in in the new chapters of your life and the things that you are embarking in and new relationships and new beginnings, let's start in the proper place with a big view of God. Wherever God is is taking this church and this new ministry, in, in, in this ministry, wherever God is bringing new chapters into the life of this church, let's start with a big view of God. That's why we're here. The only one deserving or worthy of being truly called awesome, that's why ultimately we are here. It's why we're here in this building on this Sunday morning to worship Him, to glorify Him, to to shout how majestic His name is in all the earth. That's also the reason why we're here in that we even exist. So let's have a big view of God. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Lord, I just pray that we start with that that proper place of, of reverence and acknowledgement of who you are and everything that you've set before us in our lives to do, that we realize that it's all worship, that we truly remain in a, a state of awestruck wonder and humility, that who are we that you are mindful of us yet? You have set your affection on us. You have set your loving kindness upon us. You've sent your Son to go through the the uttermost lengths to redeem us. That He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become your righteousness. And Lord, I pray that that thanksgiving, that worship would just abound and increase and that we would Spread that worship and that thanksgiving to the mouths of people who worship does not yet exist on their tongues, Lord, that we would see as your glory extends over all the earth, that we would see the mouths of of people in this community and people all over the earth extolling just how awesome and how majestic you are. Lord, I pray that we would start within our own selves. We give you all the glory. In the name of Christ, our Lord and King. Amen.